Wednesday, September 19th, 2012, episode number 17 of Football Nation Today with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Nation Today podcast hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, available exclusively on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows offered here at footballnation.com in the iTunes store. If you have yet to do so, it is an action-packed show summarizing week two of the NFL, looking ahead to week three of the NFL as well. Uh, coming up in the first down segment, I'll play you a conversation I had earlier today with David Holcomb. You know him, of course, from the Monday Morning Huddle podcast right here on footballnation.com. And David and I discussed the events from week two, in particular, the replacement officials. I want to apologize to Dave, start off the interview by ranting and raving to him and yelling at him about the officials and the abomination they were on Monday night and the abomination they were in week two and the abomination they were in week one and the abomination they've been since they took the field for preseason ball in the beginning of August. It's not Dave's fault that the NFL owners continue to epitomize greed, um, but yet he was talking to me earlier today, so I let out a little bit at him. But <laughs> in all seriousness, and Dave Holcomb, we thank you for coming on the show. We also did talk about some on-field stories with the NFL this week, including Peyton Manning's uh, horrific performance Monday night after a star performance in Week 1. Which performance should we take more stock into? Falcons and 49ers are both 2-0. They look like world beaters. Are those teams for real? Uh... Ravens-Cowboys, big wins in Week 1, disappointing losses in Week 2, especially Dallas getting blown out against Seattle. We talk about that. The Patriots, a surprising loss to Arizona. What's the story out of that game? And David, of course, is from Pittsburgh originally. Big Steelers fan. We talked to him a little bit about the Steelers in the state of the AFC North as well. Then it's our second down segment where I will further let loose about the NFL officials, replacement referees, and as I've been saying all along, it's not just the missed calls, though there are certainly plenty of those. It's the fact that these guys don't know how to run a game, and they held it together by the skin of their teeth in week one, for the most part. And then this past week, especially Monday night, it became unhinged. As you all know by now, you watch that game, or at the least you've seen clips of the egregious uh, mistakes made by the referees, and just really all, all hell broke loose uh, at the end of pretty much any semi-controversial call. And the game took nearly four hours to complete. The first half alone took two hours to complete. Bad, bad stuff there. And Steve Young, actually, yes, that Steve Young, summarized the whole situation perfectly. I'll play you a clip of Steve Young, his rant against the NFL referees a bit later on. Then our third down segment, it's the Big Up Slowdown, talking about notes from the Giants-Buccaneers game this week. Greg Schiano, Tom Coughlin going back and forth to tell you who's right, who's wrong. Wes Welker playing in place of Julian Edelman, uh, Julian Edelman, excuse me, playing in place of Wes Welker for the Patriots. What's going on there? I'll give you the lowdown as well. Then the fourth down segment, Jay Cutler got sacked a million times last week, threw a million picks, and said some stupid things as well. We'll rant and rave against Jay Cutler. But before we do all of that, do want to quickly mention Steve Sable, 69 years old, passed away this week, unfortunately losing his battle with brain cancer. Steve's father, Ed, 92, is still alive. The Sables, of course, founders of NFL Films, and it goes without saying what a legend Steve Sable is in this industry, and that Steve Sable and NFL Films uh, deserve a boatload of credit, a lot of credit, 
from morphing the presentation of the NFL into what it is today, uh, putting mics on players and coaches, all Steve Sable's idea, uh, various cam camera angles, you know, you can watch a game from various perspectives, all Steve Sable's ideas, um, all those things from Steve Sable and NFL Films. Uh, I would argue no one has done more in terms of shaping the NFL's image in popular culture than Steve Sable, a pioneer in his industry, uh, never played the game of football, but did more than arguably anybody in this generation uh, to shape the perception and image of the National Football League and popular culture. NFL's number one, no matter what they do, replacement referees or not, still by far the number one sport in this country, and uh, the way the game is presented uh, plays a big role into that, and Steve Sable plays, played a big role into the way the game was presented to the public, and he unfortunately passed away this week at the age of 69, far, far, far too soon. So we'll be right back with our first down segment and David Holcomb of Monday Morning Huddle, and then we'll get the show uh, further underway. Back in a moment, Football Nation Today. Welcome back to the Football Nation Today podcast. It's our first down segment, and to help us with this, we bring on another podcaster here at the site, David Holcomb. You know him from the Monday Morning Huddle on FootballNation.com. Dave, how are you? Good, Alex. How are you? Doing well. Again, we're talking with David Holcomb, Monday Morning Huddle. Catch him every Monday morning. The show is published on FootballNation.com. And Dave, uh, you missed this on your show this week because it happened Monday night. Uh, I'm at a breaking point with these referees, man. I mean, it was so atrociously officiated. <laughs> Even the ESPN commenters were laying into them. Gruden, Dave. Gruden yeah. was actually being critical. And the worst part is, yeah. I don't see these owners budging. They don't care. Because as Steve Young essentially said, we're all sheep and we'll still watch. I mean, Dave, when the ESPN announcers are getting on you, you know you're screwing up big time. Right, yeah. And it, it was it was quite an embarrassing moment, I'd say, for the NFL in general. Uh you know, the Monday night uh, game is usually the, the biggest one of the week, um, at least probably the most watched, and um, it took them almost two hours or at least an hour and a half, half to play one quarter. Hours. Yeah, well, how long did the first quarter last? The first quarter <laughs> was just there, – there weren't very many commercials. There was just very long delays with the referees trying to figure out what was going on on the field, and they lost control of the game. Right. And you look, Dave, it's a crappy product right now. I mean, games are taking close to four hours. It's like baseball games. I mean, these referees yeah. don't know how to run a game. It took them six minutes on Monday to figure out the garden variety fumble. You know, it coaches, players mm -hmm. don't respect these guys. That Mike Vick, Vick play on Sunday took them north of three minutes to sort, which should have been an obvious overturn. He obviously didn't fumble that ball. It was forward progress on the pass. Games are becoming right. unhinged. You saw John Fox lose his mind with a 12-minute on the field call last night. Uh, to me, it's just completely right. out of control. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Alex. Um, I, I, you know, listened to your show over the summer, and, and you were making a big deal about it back then. And I, I'll, I'll admit, I was somebody who didn't think it was that big of a deal. Whatever, you know, it's a, it's a labor issue with referees. I don't really care. Um, but as we've seen, it's it's really affecting um, the outcome. It's affecting outcomes of games, and it's affecting the speed and. Um, the, the play of the games, and um, the NFL should not be happy with where it is right now, the referees. You can tell I'm worked up about this, <laughs> but I'll ask you this, Dave. Um, what's the breaking point? Is there a breaking point for the NFL to get these referees back early? Um, I, I'm not sure there is one. I, I, 
I haven't heard exactly what Steve Young said, um, but he said something to the, the effect of we'll watch anyway, and I, I think that's true. Until I, I read somewhere online today, unless you know fans stop watching or unless the players' union or players step forward and say we're not going to play with these replacement referees, then I think these replacement referees are here to stay. Talking with David Holcomb, host of Monday Morning Huddle, footballnation.com. Dave, on the field, yes, teams are actually playing football in between these horrifically officiated games, horrifically run games, more importantly. Um, Ravens-Cowboys, both very impressive wins in Week 1. Both teams lost in Week 2. Dallas gets blown up by Seattle. Whatever it is, Tony Romo in Seattle can't ever get it right. Baltimore lost the Eagles by 1. Which loss is worse in your mind, and who will rebound this upcoming week? Um, that's a good question. I, I would say the Ravens loss was, was a worse loss just because they got four turnovers and, and Philadelphia again, couldn't take care of the ball. Um, but yet still found a way to win. And four of those turnovers were inside the red zone. So the Eagles going in to score at right. least to get field goals, turning the ball over and, and somehow Baltimore leaves them in the game, you know, going into halftime, it could have been really uh, out of hand, but it was only a 10-point lead. And, you know, what? Philadelphia has a talented team. They can come back um, only down by 10. So I, I thought that was a bad, even though it was on the road um, against a team that's probably going to be in the playoffs, I still think that uh, Baltimore letting that one slip away uh, was a bad loss. About the Ravens, Dave, they're playing the Patriots this week. They're one of the many one-and-one teams in the league, and we heard a lot in training camp about how the Ravens are trying to go to a more vertical offense. I think that may have come back and bit them, though, on Sunday, whereas they had, what was it, third and one, 56 seconds to go at midfield, and Joe Flacco tried two consecutive pass plays on fourth and one. He overthrew Ray Rice by a mile. Um, Baltimore, of course, trying to become more pass-oriented, but in my opinion, it really bit them there in week two, and I'd be curious to see this Sunday night against New England if they go back to more of the ground and pound. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think a lot of teams like Baltimore or uh, Pittsburgh have tried to go more vertical, and sometimes it doesn't work because um, th- these teams uh, play defense first. They they try and they stop the run and run on offense, and then when you when you put in a pass oriented offense that doesn't necessarily control the clock, it affects your defense as well. And, and a lot of people don't understand that. But um, but yeah, if, you, if you've ever heard. Um, my show, you know that I, I think it's very important to still be able to run the ball today in the NFL. And I'm looking at the stats right now. Ray Rice only getting 16 rushes. I don't think that's enough um, for one of the best rushers uh, in, in the league. Well, yeah, I have heard your show, Dave. And that's where you and I disagree a little bit because I actually do think you can win in today's NFL without running the ball effectively. The Green Bay Packers in 2010 only ran the ball 11 times in that Super Bowl, and you would know, you know, beat your Pittsburgh Steelers. But if you don't have an elite quarterback or one who's elite in big games like Ben Roethlisberger is, you have no chance at winning in today's NFL. That's true. I mean, it's all about the quarterback. I think it's always been about the quarterback. If you don't have a great quarterback, you're not going to win, at least win the Super Bowl. Um, but I, in order to win the Super Bowl, I think the, the, although the Giants weren't exactly the most uh, balanced team last year, uh, just kind of caught at the right time. Um, I, I think New England learned uh, that you know th- their offense really had gotten too too pass oriented, and as as you probably know, they're trying to go back to that running game with uh, uh, Stephon uh, Ridley. 
Absolutely again, Dave Holcomb. Uh, Monday morning huddle, Football Nation today. Uh, Dave, about those Patriots here in New England, as I'm sure you could imagine, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Patriots' failures with their loss this week to Arizona, <laughs> especially on right. offense and the offensive line. Uh, but what's lost is that Cardinals defense, man. Patrick Peterson, Cornelius Campbell, Darnell Dockett, they got some playmakers there, and they have the old Steelers defensive formation in as well with Ken Wisenhunt as their coach. So what's the bigger story right. out of the game, the Patriots losing or the Cardinals defense being uh, legit? Um, I think, uh, to be honest, it's the Cardinals. Uh, I think just them going cross-country and winning a game against one of the top teams in the other conference, that's that's big news to me. And all of a sudden, the NFC West looks like it's full of good teams. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers are a top team in the NFC, and the Cardinals and Seahawks look like they're very respectable, beating Patriots and the Cowboys. And hey, the Rams almost beat the Lions and ended up being beating RG, RG3. So that could be a really interesting division. Are the 49ers and Falcons as good as they've shown to be over these first two weeks of the season? I, I think so. Um, I really like, I've always liked Matt Ryan um, he, when he came into the league. I, I love Mike Smith. I think he's done a great job with the Falcons. And although they haven't been able, been able to win a playoff game yet, I, I think they're going to win that division in the South. The 49ers, they, I don't know how you can't like them unless you don't like, you know, Jim Harbaugh or something. But um, they, they just, they play such great defense. Their special teams is, is great with the, the um their punter's name is slipping my mind, but the number one punter in the league last year, yep. and um, David Akers, what he was able to do. And then, you know, the offense is really coming into its own. That's that's a team that you thought maybe they were going to become too pass-oriented, bringing in Randy Moss and Mario Manningham, but the first two games, absolutely not. Running Frank Gore and Alex Smith just looks better with more, more weapons. Shifting over to the AFC West quickly here, David, uh, Peyton Manning after week one, I said here on this show last week, and uh, in the first down segment last week, I said, five things I learned from week one, Peyton Manning is back. Whoopsie, three interceptions on Monday night, a lot of wobbly balls out of his arm. Uh, which performance should I take more stock in, Dave, week one or week two from Manning? Um, I guess I'm going to cheat a little and say it's something in the middle. I, I would say, I would say week one, I would say week one. Thank you. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I think it's just the difference between being at, at home and, and being on the road and the Falcons defense was swarming last night in, inside the dome and Peyton Manning wasn't ready to handle that yet and, and seemed like the offense was moving too quickly with the no huddle. And then on the road with um, a, a Steeler defense that was missing Ryan Clark, missing James Harrison, um, that it's a tough place to play in your first road game because of the high altitude. They, they torched the Steelers' defense. Um, so the home field advantage, I think, was a big uh, factor in, in Manning's play. How about that Steelers' defense, Dave? You're a Pittsburgh guy. Listeners of Monday Morning Huddle, I'm sure, aware of that. Ryan Clark was back this week against the Jets. Um, what do you make of Pittsburgh's big win uh, this past week against New York, and what do they got coming up this week for Week Three? Um, it, it was a it was a good win. Um, it was a little worried, I guess, going into the game after the defense didn't look too good in Denver, and then um, Mark Sanchez tore it up in Buffalo. Right, um, but. Um, but the Steelers played some really physical bump-and-run coverage. 
that the referees let them play. For the most part, there were some questionable calls that shouldn't have been called, and other plays they could have called and they didn't. Um, so I think that really affected Sanchez's uh, rhythm with his receivers, Santonio Holmes and others, and his completion percentage was well below 50%. And uh, that that defense looked really good. And, and although they're not running the ball on offense very effectively, they're controlling the clock. And even against Denver, uh, the game that they lost, they had the ball, I believe, for over 35 minutes of the game. So they're kind of returning to that old Steeler way of, of ball control. When I bring up the 0-1 AFC Championship game and cameras on the sidelines, Dave, 1 through 10, how much does your blood boil? <laughs> uh, quite a bit. I was actually at that game as a 10-year-old. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember it quite vividly. Uh, Cordell Stewart throwing his helmet after, what, the third interception or whatever, and Troy Brown scoring three different ways in that game. So, yeah, my, my blood pressure went up a little bit. <laughs> All right, Dave Holcomb, Monday morning huddle host, footballnation.com. Read them, listen to them. Dave, thanks for coming on. I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been fun, Alex. So, again, a big thanks go out to Dave Holcomb. Catch his podcast Monday mornings and Monday morning huddle here on footballnation.com. A nice recap of the weekend's events. Uh, moving on, though, to our second down segment where we take a look, of course, at the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. And Dave and I started off our conversation speaking about this before we moved to more on-field issues, and that is the replacement referees. Uh, as Dave said in the interview, I've been on this since the summer. I think this is undoubtedly the biggest story in the league and will continue to be the biggest story in the league until this issue gets resolved. And if you're sick and tired of me ranting and raving about it on a weekly basis, uh, I hate to be blunt like this, but my answer is tough because I think this is the biggest issue in the league. There's no question about it. As I was saying to Dave, when the ESPN commentators and analysis are spending their time criticizing this, uh, it's certainly beyond worthy of criticism because those guys never criticize anything, especially in regards to a major television partner like the NFL. I mean, when John Gruden, Gruden, yes, Gruden, is spending his time criticizing the replacement officials and Mike Tirico as well, who you need to usually hit with a crowbar to get an opinion out of, and you hear Steve Young's rant a little later on in this segment, uh, you know this is worthy of a lot of discussion and a lot of criticism. And they held it together by the skin of their teeth in week one, and it all fell apart this week in week two, especially Monday night on ESPN. And I'm not just talking about the embarrassing little tidbits that the blogs put up about these replacement officials, right? You know, the story this weekend about how side judge Brian Strapolo was pulled from the uh, Saints-Panthers game this week, three hours before game time. After it was discovered, he's an avid Saints fan whose Facebook page was littered with pictures of him at the Superdome in Saints gear, etc. The NFL was unaware of Strapolo's allegiances as not just a Saints fan, but a Saints fanatic. Um, and yet he's still on a replacement crew. He was not taken off. He was just taken out of the New Orleans-Carolina game three hours before game time. So yes, the NFL, Panthers Saints, had a replacement official for the replacement official. Um, I'm not just talking about the replacement referee last week who gave Seattle the extra timeout uh, you know, in week one. Came out uh, a couple days ago. He actually has officiated Seattle practices and scrimmages in the past, meaning that referee has been paid by the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, we know the NFL did a horrible job of vetting these guys uh, because, frankly, they didn't have enough time to vet these guys. There's nothing stopping a gambler, Las Vegas, calling into one of these referees, you know, a, a bookie saying, hey, 
you know, you want to make some real money, you know, you're only going to be here another few weeks, want to make some real money, fix this game for me. Put the game this way. Point spreads here. I bet this. You know, let's try to follow my cues. Uh, nothing stopping that from happening. Maybe it is going on. I don't know. We don't know anything about these guys. Uh, there's a LaShawn McCoy story this week that he said a uh, replacement referee said to him before the game against Baltimore, uh, McCoy, come on. I need you for my fantasy team. Uh, maybe it was a joke. I don't know. But it wasn't a very funny joke. <laughs> these referees just don't know what to do with the moment. They act like starstruck goofballs. They're not professionals. That's what it comes down to. And we know that. And because of that, we get stories like a Saints fanatic being scheduled to referee a New Orleans Saints game, or a guy who was paid by the Seattle Seahawks refereeing a Seattle Seahawks game, or, you know, a referee telling LaShawn McCoy to have a good week for the fantasy team. We get stories like that, and they fill up Deadspin, they fill up other blogs out there, but that's not what I'm primarily concerned about. What I'm primarily concerned about is the product and how much it sucks, because these referees don't know how to run a game. The calls are inconsistent, heavy on holding, light on pass interference, every crew calls a game dramatically differently from the other crews, but that's even not the biggest point. The biggest point is not knowing replay, re replay rules, not knowing what's reviewable and not reviewable. And as a result, players, coaches have no respect for these guys. You look at Monday night. It took them north of six minutes, six minutes to figure out and sort out a garden variety fumble. No Sean Moreno, Denver running back, fumbled the football. There was a scrum. It appeared Denver came up with the ball, but there was a scrum like there is at after every football, after every fumble in the NFL. And instead of players and coaches giving the referees some space to sort it out, they all stormed the field. Players and coaches alike had their hands on each other, brawls ensued, not necessarily brawls, but little scrums that would have been turned into brawls if they lasted any longer. People were putting hands on, their ref on the referees. It was a mess. and took more than six minutes, yes, six minutes, to sort out. And the officials panicked, handed it to Atlanta, even though, as they said, it looked like Denver probably recovered. But the officials panicked because they had no room to think. Why did they have no room to think? Because there is no respect. The players and coaches don't respect the referees. You saw it after the Sean Moreno fumble. It took six minutes, north of six minutes, in fact, to sort all that out. Uh, Twelve players on the field. John Fox had a nutty. He lost it on the sidelines when 12 players on the field was called. Now, it was the right call. Replay showed. The referees had it right. The Broncos had 12 players on defense. But John Fox threw the challenge flag, threw a nutty on the sideline, because he doesn't trust replacement officials to make any sort of right calls. Even when they make the right calls, they're the wrong calls in the minds of the players and the coaches. On a pass interference call in the fourth quarter, Atlanta, Denver, most didn't see it because most were in bed by the time this happened. Happened in the wee hours of the morning because football games now take four hours to complete because of stuff like the six-minute fumble scrum. But anyway, pass interference call in the fourth quarter. A receiver for Denver catches the ball at the, from the 42, goes to the 38-yard line. The penalty was administered at the 32, not the 38. The penalty was called at the 38. The referees administered the penalty at the 32. Why? Because in college, it's 10 yards pass interference. So the Broncos went from the 42 to the 32, but in the NFL, of course, pass interference works where the flag is thrown, that's where the play picks up. The referees instituted the college rules. They don't even know the rules, 
in the NFL for pass interference. I talked about how slow these games are. Monday Night Football on Monday took four hours to complete. The first half took nearly two hours to complete. These are like Red Sox-Yankee games now, marathons that never end. The NFL for years has tried so hard to keep it to three hours, three-hour games, boom, boom, in and out. And now these games are three and a half hours, three hours, 40 minutes, and Monday night nearing on four hours, and the first half took right, uh, roughly two hours to complete. Um, Eagles-Ravens game. It took these referees nearly three minutes to determine that Mike Vick didn't fumble. When it was clear to anyone watching, Mike Vick didn't fumble. He got hit as he was racing the ball forward. Ray Lewis, after the game, said, it's time for the real referees to come back. Bluntly, right there, doesn't care about the repercussions, doesn't care if he'll get fined from the league. Ray Lewis, speaking on behalf of everybody else in the league, put it best on Sunday when he said, it's time for the real referees to come back. Players don't have respect for the officials. Coaches most certainly don't have respect for the officials. These games are becoming unhinged. They're absolutely becoming unhinged. St. Louis, Washington... Turn that on at times, you would have thought it resembled a WWE match with all the with all the shoving and pushing going along around and trash talking. Josh Morgan lost his cool, threw a, threw a football at a St. Louis Ram because they have no respect for these officials. They have no respect for them. They're not going to stop the scrum. They're not going to stop taunting. They have no respect for the officials and what they do. These games are becoming unhinged. They are breaking down. And as a result, they're turning into four-hour marathons. And the league was kept together by the skin of its teeth at, on, at, in week one. But now, after week two, it's apparent, man. These coaches, these players have no respect for the referees. The referees don't command any respect. They don't know the rules of the game. They don't know what's reviewable and not reviewable. They don't know how to institute pass interference. They're light on the holding, heavy on the pass interference. Each crew crawls the game incredibly differently from the other crews. So no coach, no player knows what to expect week in, week out. They don't know how to spot the ball. They don't know how to properly run the play clock. You always have to be on the lookout from the sidelines for petty mistakes. It's a disaster. They don't know how to run a game. It's a mess. That game on Monday night, Broncos-Falcons, sucked. It was awful, and it should have been great. Peyton Manning versus the Falcons. What's better? Well, a lot of things on Monday night, because the game sucked. The pace was incredibly slow. Game never got going. Scrum after scrum after scrum, never broken up. The game became unhinged. That was a crappy product on Monday night, and it was largely a crappy product all weekend. And why are the real referees still not officiating? Well, because the owners don't want to grandfather in existing pension benefits for those current officials. Guess how much it would cost each team to grandfather the existing pension benefits for the real referees, grandfather them into the league under the new CBA. Guess how much it would cost each team? $63,000 per year. Yep, 63 grand per year. A little over 2 million in total. The NFL is a 9 plus billion dollar industry. And these owners can't spare $63,000 per team to grandfather in the existing pension benefits for the real referees. It's the height of greed. In fact, it's beyond greed. And there's really nothing any of us can do about it. Steve Young explained it perfectly at the end of Monday Night Football. And again, the wee hours of the morning, because the game took nearly four hours to complete. Guys, how do I start here? 
I, I can say this because uh, the league officials have gone to sleep. So yes. let me just go right at this. There's a lot of people in the, in the league that would rather break the union. There's a lot of people that don't feel like officiating is on-field personnel. They feel like it's a commodity. But more importantly, everything about the NFL now is inelastic for demand. There's nothing that they can do to hurt the demand for the game. So the bottom line is they don't care. Player safety doesn't matter in this case. Bring the Division Three officials, doesn't matter. Because in the end, you're still going to watch the game. We're going to all complain and moan and gripe and say there's all these problems. And all the coaches will say the players will say it. Doesn't matter. So just go ahead, gripe all you want. I'm going to rest. Let them eat cake. Couldn't have said it better myself. Moving on. I am on Roger Goodell's side here. Real quick, then we'll get to third down. Roger Goodell and Jonathan Vilma had a meeting this past Monday afternoon in New York. And Goodell showed Jonathan Vilma a signed statement from former Saints defensive coordinator Greg Williams saying that Williams placed a bounty on Brett Favre. Now, Vilma says that Williams was bullied into signing the Afi David. And that's not sufficient evidence. Excuse me. How is that a possible argument? You're going to tell me that defensive coordinator Greg Williams was bullied? Bullied into signing that statement? The defensive coordinator was bullied by his own players. Really? Is anybody buying that? Look, Jonathan Vilma, as captain of the Saints defense, as one of the leaders of the team, has to, has to take his lumps here. He participated in the bounty scheme. There's a boatload of evidence that he did. The NFL has assigned Offy David from Greg Williams about a bounty on Brett Favre. Jonathan Vilma's guilty here. And as a leader of that defense, he should face punishment. I'm on the side of Roger Goodell in the NFL here. They cannot let this go. They will not let this go. You do not win when you go against Roger Goodell, for better or for worse. And for a lot of cases, like the referees, it's for worse. But in this case, with Vilma and Bountygate, it's for the better. These players, and Jonathan Vilma in particular, as a leader of that defense, deserve to be punished for their deplorable actions a couple of seasons ago. Jonathan Vilma's going to keep fighting, and I respect him for that. As I said last week on the show, I respect him for standing his ground. He can kiss goodbye any analyst job after he retires, or any coaching job as well. He's done with the done from the league. Once he retires, he's never coming back. And I respect Vilma for standing by his principle, principles. But his principles are incredibly wrong here. And it's weaselly to try to get out of this. Try to get out of punishment for something that you so blatantly committed just a few short years ago with hard written evidence to support the argument against you. Moving on to our third down segment, it's the big up slowdown segment. I say a statement and then state my agreement with it by saying big up or my disagreement with it by saying slow down. Some interesting questions this week. So listen up. Starting off with the Patriots, Julian Edelman participated in 75 plays last week in the Patriots-Cardinals game. Wes Welker participated in 63 last Sunday, but the real difference came in two wide receiver sets when Edelman was on the field 12 times and Welker on the field a mere three times. The Patriots' offense only scored 18 points against Arizona last week, so big up or slow down. Sitting Wes Welker and demoting him to the number three wide receiver behind Edelman is the right move for the Patriots to win games now. I say slow down here because for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's clear that Brady still loves throwing to Welker 
as Welker was one of his main targets in the fourth quarter last week, Welker and Gronkowski. So it's very clear Welker is still always at the forefront of Brady's mind. Whenever Brady's on the field, he's the guy Brady looks to first or second on every single passing play, just about. So Welker's still Brady's number one target, or one of them. But he's obviously in Bill Belichick's doghouse. And why is Wes Welker in Belichick's doghouse? Those around the team, here in the Patriots media say, it's because Edelman had a better August than Welker did. Had a better training camp. A much better training camp. Has been better in practice. And that's why Welker's behind him on the depth chart now. Entering week three of the regular season. Wes Welker, the man who's led your team in receptions virtually every year he's been here. Been an integral part of two Super Bowl teams. You know, thousand yard, you know, thousand yard seasons, four out of the five years he's been here, whatever the number is. But yet Edelman had a better August than Welker, and because of it, oh, Edelman's the starter, Welker isn't. That's absurd. You're going to tell me that if Donald Thomas had a better August than Logan Mankins, you know, gotten in earlier, got out later, played better in preseason, worked a little harder in practice, you're going to tell me that Mankins would be, would be behind Donald Thomas on the offensive line? Of course not. You're going to tell me, let's say, Brandon Diedrich had a better August than Vince Wilfork. Worked really hard, came up big in his time in the preseason games, came in early, stayed late. Wilfork as a veteran kind of coasted at times. You're to tell me that we'd see Brandon Diederich at nose tackle and Vince Wilfork on the bench? No, of course not. Wes Welker has enough leeway here to have a mediocre camp or a mediocre practice. Welker's in Belichick's doghouse because maybe he dropped the pass in the Super Bowl last year. Maybe because he dropped the pass in week one this year. Maybe because he held out and didn't attend offseason minicamps. Maybe because he signed the franchise tag $9 million a year and it burns the Patriots and it burns the Patriots inside that they have to pay a receiver $9 million a year and Welker didn't comply with them in the long-term contract negotiations. Maybe it's because Welker tweeted taking a leap of faith when he, waved to, uh, when he signed his tender uh, to be franchised this offseason. Maybe it's because of a combination of all those reasons. Or maybe it's something we don't even know. But it is not because Edelman had a better training camp than Welker. That is absurd. Now the Patriots are also trying to evolve into a more balanced offense. They're running the ball more. Trying to become less of a chuck and duck kind of team. And they're also here preparing for life without Welker. Because he will be a free agent again at the end of the season. His franchise number will go up. And it burns the Patriots, they have to pay him nine plus million this year. There's no way they're going to pay him more next year. The Patriots are preparing for life without Welker. Edelman, presumably, is the guy who would take Welker's spot as the main slot receiver. But in doing so, in preparing for the future, in preparing for a life without Welker, in trying to become a more balanced offensive attack for later in the season, and especially the postseason, by running the ball more, the Patriots also need to realize that they can't take their eyes off of the right now. Because Tom Brady is 35, you know. He's not getting any younger. And every win counts. And the Patriots, it would greatly behoove them to have the easiest road to the, road to the Super Bowl possible. Trying to become more balanced offensively, which many have been calling for. Phasing out Welker because you're not going to be with him uh, for any longer than this year. Those are all lofty, those are all perfectly fine goals. And to an extent, I respect the Patriots for developing the long term, becoming more balanced offensively. 
seeing if Edelman is for real and can work with Brady as an integral part in this offense to replace Welker after this season. I understand all that, and I respect all of that, but I respect it to an extent. I don't respect it when it gets in the way of winning games. And I don't see how anyone can argue that the Patriots right now are a better team with Edelman on the field 12 more times than Welker is. Last play in the Giants-Buccaneers game this week. The Giants were up by one possession. They attempted a kneel down to run out the clock. You see it on a weekly basis across the league, but you never see this. The Buccaneers, at the snap of the football, charged the Giants' offensive line, trying to force a fumble, and Tom Coughlin had a major problem with it. New Buccaneers coach Greg Schiano said after the game it was within the rules and wasn't a dirty play, and his team plays until the end. Big up or slow down, it was a dirty play. Uh, I say big up here, only because the Giants weren't ready for it, and only because it's never done, and thus, it's Bush League. It was Bush League. It's not done in the league. It's not in the protocol. Giants weren't ready for it. It's Bush League. But, I like where Greg Schiano's mind is. I do. And I'd love to see this league get to a point where in a one-possession game, something like that isn't a Bush League play. I mean, obviously, if it's a 2-3 possession game, it's a Bush League play regardless. But in a one-possession game, hey, they get paid for the full 60 minutes. You play to win the game. You play the game until the final whistle. I'd love to get to the point where in a one-possession game, that's not considered Bush League. I like where Shiano's mind is at. I like his mentality. But as it stands now, it's a Bush League play. The Giants weren't ready for it because no one else does it. Cold Hard Football Facts is the great website associated with us here at FootballNation.com. We're very proud of that partnership. I'm a big fan of Kerry Byrne and all the work they do over there. Uh, they had an interesting article up this week about Matt Ryan and how he's now the best QB in his division. Yep, that's right, better than Drew Brees. He is the league's leader in real quarterback rating. That's a Cold Hard Football Stats stat, 116.6, and he outdoled Peyton Manning on Monday night. Also on Monday night, Matt Ryan became the fourth fastest QB in history to throw to 100 career touchdowns. So big up or slow down. Ryan is now the best QB in the NFC South. It's tough. It's close. But ultimately, I say slow down. And I'm probably going to sound like a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal here because the statistics show that Matt Ryan has had a terrific two weeks. Fourth fastest QB ever to 100 touchdowns. I respect all of that. And I'm probably going to sound like a knuckle-dragging sports Neanderthal. But so be it. Because here's one stat that Matt Ryan remains piss-poor in. 0-3 in the postseason. I rest my case. 0-3 in playoff games. Zero wins, three losses. Most of those losses, especially last year's, blowout losses, I might add. The Falcons look like the best team in the division right now. The Saints and Panthers combined are surrendering an average of 250 passing yards per game. And Tampa Bay, after their performance against New York this week, or last week, is now on pace to surrender 6,408 yards through the air in 2012. That's right, 6,408 yards. And the Falcons' defense looks great. Brent Grimes has gone down via injury, but Robinson and Samuel have done a great job at corner thus far. They'll need to continue to do that because Atlanta's going to play with a lot of leads. They look great. And Matt Ryan looks great, and he certainly looked great on Monday night outdueling Peyton Manning. That's for sure. But slow down. Because Drew Brees has won his Super Bowl. Drew Brees has taken his team deep into the playoffs. 
And Matt Ryan hasn't won a single postseason game. He's 0-3 in the playoffs. And until that stat changes, until Matt Ryan does it in a big game, I have trouble calling him the best of anything. Now time for our fourth down segment. It's the Remorant. And the Remorant this week deals with a familiar face. We spoke a lot about him last week when he was trash-talking the Packers prior to Thursday night game. And, of course, Jay Cutler threw four interceptions, was sacked seven times. Clay Matthews up in his grill all night long, to say the very least. Uh, the Bears are playing the Rams this week. Sure, it'll be a little lighter on the trash-talk for Mr. Cutler. Um, but Jay Cutler, my friends, is an absolute loser. Uh, I admit it, I've biased against Jay Cutler. I have for many years. Classic case of million-dollar arm, 10-cent head. Uh, with better coaching, he could be salvaged. But with Chicago, with Lovey Smith, he will not be salvaged because Lovey Smith doesn't give a damn about what happens on the offensive side of the football. Totally disengaged from the offense. So until Jay Cutler gets a strong head coaching presence in there, uh, I wouldn't expect much more out of him than what you're getting, which is an occasional 300, 350-yard performance. But... Other than that, you're going to get seven sacks, four interceptions. Yeah, the offensive line struggled mightily as well, but allocating on Jay Cutler. So let's hate on Jay Cutler for his performance, not backing up his big mouth. And let's also hate on Jay Cutler for what he said this week to ESPN Radio Chicago, ESPN 1000. When asked if there was one throw he could take back from his disastrous performance and last Thursday's 23-10 uh, loss to Green Bay, I'm reading this from ESPN.com, uh, Cutler chose a pass that receiver Brandon Marshall dropped in the end zone early in the third quarter as the Bears, tra as the Bears trailed 13 to nothing. Cutler said about the pass that Marshall dropped, quote, I wish I had that one back. The picks, you can have those. The one I would take back was the one to Brandon off his hands. I put it up probably just a half count quicker than I wanted to. Felt a little bit of pressure and put it up. B will tell you it was a catchable ball, but I could have made it 10 times easier for him just putting it up a little to the left and holding him up a little bit. He crushed the guy on his route and that could have made it easier on him. That could have changed the complexion of the game. Yeah, never mind the four interceptions. No, no, nothing to do with the result of the game. Yeah, the game would have changed on a dime if Brandon Marshall caught that ball. That's right, that was the difference. I walked away from that Bears-Packers game and said, never mind the fact that Cutler was sacked seven times. Never mind the fact that Clay Matthews was in the backfield almost as much as Cutler was. Never mind the fact Cutler threw four, yes, four interceptions. Never mind the fact Cutler was erratic all night long. No. That one play to Brandon Marshall, that one play is what the game boiled down to. I'll tell you one thing, Jay Cutler doesn't have a career as an analyst after his playing days are done, I'll tell you that much. I mean, my goodness, what? talk about taking no accountability. Talk about not recognizing what's wrong. And that's reason number one of a million why Jay Cutler will never win at a high level. I go back to his performance in the NFC title game a couple of years ago. Packers-Bears, when Cutler removed himself from the game with the injury. And... The reason why I criticized Cutler after that was his contemporaries. Other players in the league went on Twitter questioning why Cutler pulled himself out of that game. Well, the Bears, I bet you wish Cutler pulled himself out of the game on Thursday, huh? He wanted the Bears to play physical. They sure played physical. They sacked him seven times. And he threw four picks. Most of them, which weren't even close to the Chicago Bear receivers. Jay Cutler, classic case. Million-dollar arm, 10-cent head. And on Thursday night... After a lot of trash talking against Green Bay, their number one divisional rival, he put forth a 10 cent performance. Thank you for tuning in to Football Nation today, episode 17. 17, if you can believe that. 
Again, big thanks go out to Dave Holcomb from the Monday Morning Huddle Podcast. Check that out Monday mornings right here on footballnation.com. A lot of ranting and raving this week, but what else is new? If you want to join me in the ranting and raving, you have something you yourself want to rant and rave about. I told you at the start, the show is about strong opinions. There's a lot of football media out there today, but here in Football Nation today, we hope to bring you strong opinions, hope to generate discussion. As always, feel free to drop me a line via email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Also, hit me up on Twitter, at AlexReamer1. If you have any comments for me there, hit me up. And also, of course, leave a comment on the show page on footballnation.com, hoping to get some good discussion going as well. Thank you for listening, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll talk to you next on Wednesday. Next Wednesday, Football Nation Today, Episode 18. So long. Enjoy your week. Enjoy the games this weekend. Replacement officials, as of this recording, will be out. So I'm sure we'll have a lot more to rant and rave about next Wednesday regarding them. It remains the number one story in the league. And until that problem is fixed, and it's a major problem, not sure if you've noticed, I will continue to talk a lot about it and all other sorts of goings-ons across the NFL. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next, next Wednesday.